seventh sign in the book of John takes place in this passage at a funeral, which is very, very significant. Uh, We've been working our way through the book of John in our series that we've called Enjoying Jesus. Uh, John, over and over and over, is just wanting to show us Jesus, just wanting to lift him up. Because when we see Jesus, when we see who he is, his person and all that he's done, that changes you when you see him with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of your heart. Literally, we are changed by fixing our gaze upon Jesus and who he is. So that's what week in and week out we've been looking at in the, in the Gospel of John. One of the ways that he arranges his Gospel is around these seven signs that Jesus performs. Now, a sign is obviously a miracle, but for John, he calls it a sign because Jesus wasn't just doing cool tricks. Every miracle that he performs is intended to be a sign. And you know what a sign is? A sign reveals something. A sign points you somewhere. Jesus' miracles, these seven signs are intended to point us to Jesus and to what he's come to do. And here in the seventh sign, the climactic sign, it takes place at a funeral. What's interesting is his first sign takes place at a wedding back in John chapter 2. So as we come to this passage here, we are entering into a funeral. If you've ever been to a funeral, you can imagine all that is being felt in this context here. Now, one of the things to be aware of here is that the person that has died, his name is Lazarus, and he had two sisters, Martha and Mary. And if you're familiar at all with the Gospels, you know that Jesus was very close with this family. They were some of his best friends. And Lazarus has become sick. And one thing that that when we jump into our passage here, we're kind of skipping over uh, some helpful background information that starts at the very very beginning of the chapter. If you go back to to verse 1, you see that Lazarus at that point was sick. It was days earlier. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, Lazarus, is sick, and they actually say, the one that you love is sick. They're kind of reminding him of his deep affection for Lazarus. And at that point, whenever Jesus hears that, that he is sick, he says to his disciples, this is not going to end in death, but rather this whole situation is going to be used to bring glory to God Through the glorification of his son. God is going to use this situation to glorify himself. And we're brought back to what we talked about about two weeks ago. And that is this deeply biblical perspective on suffering. It's very different from that of the world. That suffering is something that God uses to bring about good and to bring about glory for himself. You know, anytime that we face suffering in our life, there's always this why question. And so often, if we're going to look to the world for some sort of understanding or something that will help us to endure suffering in the world, we're not going to find it. Because in the world, so often suffering is directly attributed to you. So if you're suffering in some way, then it's something that you've done. It's your fault. Now, sometimes that can be true. But what we see from the biblical perspective of suffering is that God uses suffering, no matter how broken or how seemingly lost some situation is, 
how painful it might be that it is God's business to enter into those places and to use it for his glory and our good. And we see that again here. Jesus says, God's going to use this to glorify himself through glorifying his son. But something happens immediately after he said that. Jesus has received word he's sick, he's gravely ill. Jesus is a couple miles away from where Lazarus is. The sisters know that Jesus with one word can come and heal their brother. But we are told by John in verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus purposefully delays. He knows that he's gravely sick. He's received word. And John has just reminded us again in verse 5 that he loves him. It's so often whenever God says no to an answered prayer or there's delay and waiting, when we are pleading with him, it is so easy to believe and or, or to even to begin to doubt his love for you. And yet John, right before he says Jesus delay, says, Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And then he waited. He purposefully delays. He allows Lazarus to die. And, and that question that comes up whenever we face suffering was certainly at work in Mary and Martha. And we see that in their encounter. So Jesus has delayed. Lazarus has died. Jesus then goes to go see Mary and Martha. And they come out to meet him. And that's the passage that we just read and what I want to focus on here. And we see Jesus encountering these two ladies, and we're going to see two basic things as we look at the passage. We're going to see Jesus' person, and we're going to see his work. We're going to see his person, in other words, who he is. His encounter with Mary and Martha reveals who he is. But then we're going to see his work as he comes to the tomb there at the end. What has he come to do? His person and his work. So first off, we see beginning at verse 17 where he read, Jesus has come and Martha comes out to meet him. Now, he encounters both sisters at two separate moments. Now, what's interesting about this is that Mary and Martha ask the same question. Did you catch that? The exact same wording they ask him. A part of what John is doing is he's, he's wanting us to contrast these two encounters here. Now, you can imagine what Mary and Martha are feeling at this moment, right? I mean, they have just lost their brother. If you've ever lost someone close to you, you can identify with the pain of that, the real pain of that. They had just lost their brother. He wasn't old. He was young. So they're grieving over that. But then there was also this additional grief and confusion over why did Jesus not come? Why didn't he answer this prayer? Where was he? Why would he not come whenever we sent him word? We know that he loves us, but why has he delayed? And all of these things are going on in their heart. They're facing the reality of death, the reality that it's too late, and yet wondering why has he responded in this way? You even hear that in their question. So Jesus encounters Martha, and look again at what she says, verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. Have you ever asked that kind of question 
when you've experienced loss or pain or suffering in your life? If only it would have been this other way. If only this had happened. If only I had done this. If only you, Lord, had done this in my life. It would not have worked out this way. You could just see the pain and the confusion and the question in Martha. But look at how Jesus responds to Martha. To Martha, he responds with truth. You see, he says right off the bat, your brother, this is verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha says, well, yeah, I know. I know he's going to rise again at the last day. She's thinking ahead to the resurrection that's at the end of all things, or rather the beginning of all things, that God will raise everyone in the body. She thinks that's what Jesus is referring to, and she says, yeah, yeah, I know. She just thinks God, uh, Jesus is kind of hitting her with a little simple truth here to kind of dull the pain. And then did you see what Jesus responds to her? Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus almost confronts her with the truth here. He brings truth to her. And what is that truth? The truth is about who he is. It's almost as if he's saying to Martha, don't you know who I am? I am the resurrection and the life. We've talked about how in the book of John, there's all these I am statements. I am was God's name that he revealed to his people in Exodus. He says, that is my name. I am. I am the existence. I am the center of all things. That was God's special name for himself. And yet Jesus, over and over and over in the book of John, is taking that name upon himself. I am the resurrection and the life. People in the ancient world knew that the only person who can resurrect, which means to raise from the dead, is God. The only person who can give life is God. That's kind of an obvious reality. And yet Jesus is here saying not just, I have the power to resurrect. I have the power to give life. He is literally saying, I am the resurrection. I am the life. His relationship to that is so close that literally he can say, I, this, I am this reality. So essentially, Jesus to Martha in the moment of her grief is confronting her with the truth that he is God, that he could do anything, that all power belongs to him. But then in his encounter with uh, Mary, is very different. Mary comes up, falls at his feet, and says the same thing. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And how does Jesus respond differently to her? He doesn't say anything, does he? he, did, he we, we were told that he's deeply moved in spirit. And then in verse, verse 35. Verse 35, you know, is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Do you know that? Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible, but yet one of the most profound. Just get that for a minute. Jesus knows what he's about to do. We just read it, right? He's about to fix the whole thing. And yet in this moment, encountering Mary, he weeps. Like, you want to imagine here a deep, full-hearted 
grieving and wailing with Mary. You're Jesus like that. What's interesting here is that, you know, in responding to grief, you have these two completely different things. The same, the, the, the same reality, the same question, two different sisters, and yet Jesus speaks in a very different way to each one. Now, nobody really gets this perfectly. You know, whenever you're trying to help and comfort someone who's in grief, it's hard to always know what to say. Sometimes what somebody needs is they need truth. They just need to be reassured with the truth of something. But at other times, they don't need words. They need presence. They need love. And it's hard to do those both perfectly. But Jesus here knows just the perfect time to bring words and the time to just simply be present and enter. The amazing reality here is that in his response to Martha... You see his divinity, his godness, the fact that he is God. I am resurrection. All of it belongs to me. And yet, in his response to Martha, you see his humanity. The fact that he feels, the fact that he can relate to her. In the passage, we see the picture of Jesus' person, that he is both fully God and fully man in the same person. Isn't that astounding? That the person who has created the universe, the one who, Scripture says, holds all things in the universe together by the word of his power. That's Jesus. That he has made all things, that he is above all things, that he is infinitely high, that he has no limits in his knowledge and in his power. All of that is true of him, and yet at the same time, fully human in a way that he can enter in and weep with Mary and with us. In his humanity, he's present. He understands. He feels. He relates. And yet, in his divinity, all power belongs unto him. That is who Jesus is. And we need both. We need him to be fully God and fully man In the same person. Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest American theologians to ever live. And he would often say that the height of Jesus' glory is seen in a convergence of diverse excellencies. Those are a lot of big words, aren't they? In other words, what Edwards was saying that what most glorifies Jesus is that in him, like no other person, You have these glories, these characteristics that are seemingly opposite, but yet come together in one person. In other words, how can he in one person be both a lion and a lamb at the same time? How can he both be fully God with all power and yet embrace the weakness of humanity at the same time? How can he be powerful and just and yet tender and merciful and graceful at the same time. You see, Edwards was saying in the person of Jesus, you have a coming together of these perfections that you would find in no other place. And when we see Jesus in all of the full-orbed realities of who he is, we worship. It enhances his glory. And in the face of our suffering and what we face in our life, we need both. One who has absolute power and yet draws near to 
to weep. That's his person. But we also got to see here his power. In verse 38, as he begins to move towards the tomb, we see a picture of his work. What did he come to do? And we see in verse 38, it says that Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Now, the actual verb there in the Greek is really, now, a lot of our translators translate it once more deeply moved as if he's grieving, and Jesus was obviously grieving in this situation. But the actual Greek verb actually indicates anger. For some reason, most of the translators don't translate that. Many commentators draw this out. That Jesus literally, as he goes to the tomb, is angry. He's agitated. It's hard to even imagine Jesus angry for many of us. But what is he angry at? He's not angry at the sisters. He's not angry at Lazarus. He's angry at the reality of death. As Jesus comes to confront the tomb and death, he's filled with anger. Why? Because it's not the way that it's supposed to be. You know, it's easy, I think, especially in our culture that has a lot of problems with death. That is, facing the reality of death. We live in this culture that's probably the safest, wealthiest, uh, most comfortable society that's ever existed in the history of the world, and yet we are the most obsessed with safety because we are so terrified of death. I have a friend that's a funeral home director, and he told me that he has seized this trend that's growing that more and more as he's meeting with families who have experienced the loss of a loved one, that more and more and more they are wanting to just run through a service, that they're wanting to make it as quick as they can, that, that cremation is becoming more and more popular because it can just be put in a bottle and put away and you don't have to have the ceremony. You don't have to see the reality of death. And more and more he's finding himself trying to encourage families, listen, you've got to grieve here. You've got to deal with this. More and more I see that funerals are just called celebrations of life. Now, I think at a funeral, we should celebrate someone's life, but we ought to grieve because our culture wants to put lipstick on a pig to say that death is not that bad. And the reality is, is that death is the great enemy from the perspective of the Bible. It's not a natural thing. I hear that in our world. Death is just a natural process of life. Jesus says, wrong. I did not create death. Death is a result of the fall. It's a curse. Now, the world that we get, the brokenness and death in this world, we get the world that we deserve because of sin. But it is not the world that he created. We've fallen from that world. And so as Jesus comes to the tomb, he's filled with anger because he has come to put an end to death. And what, is, what do we see as he comes to the tomb? He comes and he says, take away the stone. And then Martha, you know, if you know Martha in the, in the Gospels, she's always the practical one here. And she says, Lord, he's been in the tomb for four days. There's a smell by now. You, you don't want to go in there. And then Jesus again confronts her. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
And then he, ha- he has them roll away the tomb. He prays to the Lord. And then he steps up and he says, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man walks out of a grave. Regardless of what we might think, that doesn't happen a lot. That, that's a miracle. A man who had been dead for four days, and John's telling us over and over and over four days. You see that repeated in the passage? So we're, we're talking like stone cold dead here all the way. And yet Jesus, by the word of his power, walks up to a tomb and says, come out. And a dead man walks out like he's never been dead before. It's a sign. What's it meant to show us and point us to? It's pointing us to what he came to do. Jesus came to bring dead people out of tombs. That's his whole work. Physically and especially spiritually. You see that in his conversation with Martha. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus came because what we need even more than physical healing is spiritual healing. We need to be brought out of spiritual death. You see, physical death is just related to spiritual death. You see, everyone by nature, because of sin, is dead spiritually. We've been separated from God because of sin. Now, Scripture actually says, in talking about our condition, and it's so hard to believe this, and I think most of us really don't believe this, that by nature we were dead in sin. And to be dead in sin means like dead, right? Think about a dead person for a minute. How can a dead person respond? What can a dead person choose to do? Nothing. It's kind of obvious, right? So whenever the Bible says you are dead in sin, it means that you are so far fallen in sin, you are unable to respond in any saving way to God. And yet Jesus has come to call dead people out of the tomb, to give them life, to open their eyes, to open their hearts so that they can actually see themselves rightly and who God is that they would see the reality of the cross, that they would believe and be saved. That reality, if that's taken place in your life, is literally the reality of being called out of a tomb. And that is what he came to do, to bring dead people out of tombs. But yet also, physically, one day, by virtue of the power of what he has accomplished, Jesus will return and call every dead person out of their tomb. That's the great hope of the scriptures. Is that one day there will be a resurrection. And by the word of his power, he will say, come out. And our spirits will be returned to our bodies and we will come out just like Lazarus. Never to return again. That is what he came to do. But it's a sign of something else. Jesus knew that the only way that he can bring Lazarus out of a tomb is to go into the tomb himself. That's really what this sign is all about. You see, at this point in the book of John, it's a climax, and everything turns at this moment and begins to move to the cross. As Jesus was standing before that tomb, 
about to call Lazarus out, he knew his own tomb was right around the corner. Jesus knew that the only way to bring anyone out of a tomb is to go in it himself. That he had to die. The only way to reconcile us to the Father is for him to be forever se- to be separated from the Father on the cross. The only way for our sins to be forgiven is for those sins to be laid upon him on the cross. The only way for him to take away the curse of our sin from us is to receive the curse himself on the cross. It's the only way. So as Jesus is standing before the tomb, he knows he's looking at his own tomb. It's the only way that we get to come out of a tomb is because he went in and then he came out. And our hope is on his death and resurrection. See, how that's how he rescues us. And it cost him everything. He knew. I mean, think about it for a minute. He created everything by the word of his power and yet made himself obedient to death. That's crazy if you think about it do that the book of Hebrews says for the joy set before him that he knew that one day he was going to bring every one of us out of a tomb that's what happened so let's apply this and try to bring it home I, I bet that there is something going on in each one of our lives right now that we can relate to Mary and Martha on some level Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a confusion that you have over circumstances that you're facing in your life. Maybe it's something that you've been pleading for God to change. Something that's painful, a broken relationship. Maybe it's debilitating depression or anxiety. What, whatever. I mean, there's so many things that we're walking through in our life. But I just know that each of us can relate to them in some way. And we're thinking, where are you? Why is this happening? You know what Jesus says to us right now in this morning? Do you believe? That's the question he keeps asking in the passage. Do you believe? That's the ultimate question. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Whatever that circumstance is. Whether it's something in your life or someone close to you. Something that feels so messy that who can ever untangle this thing? And yet Jesus says, just like to to Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. It's like a promise. Now, belief is one of those tricky things in the Bible Belt, right? We have this idea of belief, and it's just so shallow. Because, you know, right? Everybody believes this in the Bible Belt, right? We don't understand what faith is. It's not just believing something in your head. It's not just saying some formula out loud. It's embracing it in your heart. It's trusting in it. You know that word trust has an aspect of risk to it, right? And true faith always risks. It's acting as if something is true. That's what faith is. And so the question is, do you really believe this? In a way that you're willing to risk your life on it. That you're willing to depend upon the truth of it. So Jesus says, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that I've reconciled you to the Father? Do you believe 
that he enters in and weeps with you in the midst of your pain. Because where this gets real is applying this in those places of confusion and pain in your life. That's where it gets real. Those are the places where he's asking, do you believe? As we look at Mary and Martha's faith, it was not a perfect faith. Martha comes out and, and she keeps not getting what Jesus is saying. And he says, do you believe this? And she has this incredible statement of, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's like a huge statement in the book of John. And then yet, probably two hours later, she's saying, no, 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 no. There's a smell in there. Every time we see faith, it's imperfect. But yet their faith led them to run out to Jesus and fall at his feet. Is your faith leading you to do that? To run out to him. And to say, I believe. Bring your glory in this area of my life. Let's stop there just for a few moments and hear from each other. And interact over the passage a little bit. How does that, do you consider Jesus' words and his, his interaction with Mary and Martha, the cross? How does it move you? How does it strike you? What's happening in you as you? See Jesus in this passage. Um, I think, uh, especially talking about like seeing, um, seeing who Jesus is and how he. Uh, approaches Mary and Martha in their grief um, is really impactful to me right now as I have recently experienced several um, deaths of people close to me and my family, um, one of which was untimely. Um, it just, uh, and, and I've experienced a lot of confusion in dealing with that grief myself, but also in how to talk to and comfort those who were nearest um, to those people who I'm near to. Um, and I think it gives me a lot of comfort to see Christ um, not, not giving platitudes um, that sort of band-aid or ignore um, the, the pain of death, um, but at the same time offering a hope um, just a very emotional tenderness, but also just rock-solid truth. Yeah. Um, so I find that really impactful to me personally yeah. right now. Um, not in necessarily, like, getting answers. I don't know why um, <coughs> God took certain people in our lives away from us, but um, knowing that tho that's his response to us yeah. um, is really, is very... Uh, grounding I think going forward yeah. thank you for sharing that Carrie something you said really resonated with me I had lost a baby at one time and this lady came up and said all things work for the glory you know 
what is it, uh, Romans 4, 6. You know what I'm trying to yeah. say. Yeah. Work for, the, for your good or whatever. And it made me mad. It uh-huh. just hit me wrong. And, um, I mean, I knew that was true, but yeah. it just wasn't the time. Yeah. And then I had another gentleman right there just come up and embrace me and hold me. Yeah. And the difference. Yeah. yeah. So we do need yeah. wisdom. Whenever yeah. Someone. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, you know, sometimes you want to fix it when somebody's hurting. And you, you, you might bring truth, but it might really hurt. Because you've you got to have some sort of discernment of like, what is this person needing in this moment? And, and sometimes they just need somebody to be present and weep with them. Just love. And so Jesus just perfectly, he perfectly knew exactly what to bring in what moment with whom. It was uh, clarifying to me that you brought out that Jesus was irritated by the results of the fall. Yeah. And it makes so much sense sometimes that the emotion that we feel when we see injustices or broken relationships or those kind of things. Yeah. And I guess it just kind of freed me up to be a little bit irritated yes. by that. Yes. So Absolutely. I, I appreciate it yes. very much. Yes. Yeah, you know, I, I think oftentimes when we think of God, we think of God as emotionless. Right? Even though that's not the biblical picture of God. Like, God has got all kinds of emotions. And we're in his image. So that means that our emotions are not bad. When we feel things, that is only a, a picture of us being made in his image. Jesus felt things. He felt anger. He felt compassion. He felt sadness. Uh, he felt joy. And I think for many of us, our view of God is so flat and so distant that we just can't imagine that he feels with us. And yet, it's incredibly encouraging even whenever we think about the things that we're facing in our life, injustice, for instance, I mean, to know that he hates injustice and that he's going to do something about it, that's huge. And we've got to be those people in the world that believe that, that believe that God doesn't look on the world and say, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. That he looks at the world and he's, He's angry. He feels all kinds of things. He's heartbroken. You see all those things in Jesus. And so that, that really is huge. I appreciate you sharing that. I've experienced that too in my own life. How easily I can think of him just being emotionless. I think particularly if you're someone who emphasizes the sovereignty of God, we can de-emphasize the nearness of of God and how he is affected by his world and by us. You know, so, that, so many Presbyterians have a very limited range of emotion, especially if we're emphasizing God's sovereignty. Anybody else? Well, let me go ahead and bring our worship team back up. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think kind of along those lines, I think a lot of times... Like, when you first read through it, I initially thought, like, because I know the story, and I was like, Jesus wept, like, beautiful. Um, but I think having it paired with when he was already talking with Martha, 
I think it was really helpful for me. Like, obviously, I knew that Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus. But, like, my first thought was just, like, what a waste of time. Like, why do you, why do you have to, like, sit in this? You already have a plan to yeah, fix right. it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I think, because I think that's very much how I think. Of, yeah. like, if anything is hard, I'll, like, jump to how am I going to fix it? Or, yeah. like, is there a solution? And if there's not, then I'll just, like, ugh, not deal with yeah. it. Um, but I think I was really humbled and encouraged that, like, I'm trying to be, like, if we're supposed to be imitators of Christ, and I think in my mind, I think I am imitating Christ yeah. when I'm, like, I, I'll just fix it because, yeah. like, Christ redeems all things. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I'm realizing that I'm not imitating Christ yeah. when I try to, like, just jump to the solution or, just like, fix. yeah, like, have a fear of emotion or even think, like, sitting in it is a waste of time or like childish or whatever yeah it's like i'm i'm like denying a really key part of who christ is and like we should be trying to imitate him you yeah know? absolutely i mean that really is a huge insight in the passage jesus is about to fix it and yet he weeps with mary because i mean we would expect him to say listen listen i'm about to fix it okay just get up dry yourself up let's go he doesn't do that at all. He doesn't say a word. He weeps. And in some, to some degree, that's what he's doing with all of us because he knows he's going to fix it. The biblical hope is that Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. But yet, now, he weeps with us. And so it's, it's, it's a game changer, I think. Absolutely. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you, would you give us that kind of faith that drives us to you in the face of the things that we are walking through in our life, the pain, the confusion, the difficulty, the nitty-gritty of everyday life? Would we believe that you are the resurrection and you are the life and you are present with us in everything that we walk through? And would we run to you and would we believe would we believe that no matter how dark a situation is, that by faith we will see the glory of God? Let us be a people that believe that. Work faith in us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.